Hello, and welcome back to the Living Well podcast by Jefferson Health. I'm Jessica Lopez, co-hosting today's episode, as always, with my friend and colleague, Carly Williams. In this episode, we're connecting with two primary care physicians, Dr. Arun Thomas and Dr. Tito Mantia, to answer some of the top questions their patients are asking them right now. That's right. We're talking about everything from why it's important to have a primary care doctor, weight loss medications, mental health support and anxiety, the importance of preventative care, and how your family history can affect your own health. Yeah, there's a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Drs. Thomas and Mantia. Okay, we're grateful to have you both joining the podcast today. Let's start with introductions. Dr. Thomas, why don't you go first? Hello, I'm Arun Thomas. I'm a family medicine physician, works at North Wales Family Medicine, which is part of Einstein Jefferson. I'm Dr. Tito Mantia. I'm part of Einstein Family Medicine, and I work at the Trap Family Medicine office. Okay, Dr. Mantia, what is the top question you get asked by your patients? All right, especially for younger patients, one of the common questions, why do I even need to see a primary care provider if I'm healthy and I don't take any medicines. So that's usually where, where we usually start off. So the most important thing, especially uh, with primary medicine, is a lot of preventative care. And even when you're young and you don't have any chronic medical conditions just yet, it's important to keep an eye on things. So some of the preventative things we do during those visits are things like checking your blood pressure, doing a depression screening, checking sometimes cholesterol as well. Depending on weight, we may do diabetes screenings. So these are things to catch things early. We talk a lot about preventative health. That all stems with diet, with exercise, with mental health. So those are the big ticket things that we do for younger people and really why you should go see a primary care provider. Then obviously, if you have chronic conditions, we're also in charge of managing a lot of those chronic conditions to keep them stable, to again, prevent things from getting worse down the line. And there's a lot of other screenings that we do as well. So talking of that, one of the most common questions that I get is like, how can I best manage my chronic disease? There is an article published a few years ago regarding multiple chronic condition and life expectancy. It was a retrospective analysis done on a Medicare beneficiaries by number of chronic conditions that they have. In conclusion, they found that an average 67-year-old individual with no chronic conditions will live on an average of 22.6 additional years. And same age group, if they have five chronic conditions, they will live 7.7 less years. And if they have 10 chronic conditions, they will be living 17.6 less years. Essentially, average marginal decline in life expectancy was like 1.8 years with each additional chronic condition. Essentially, what we are trying to say here is managing and keeping your chronic condition does matter to keep the expected life expectancy. So if you have a chronic disease, you can manage it by follow healthy lifestyle that include proper diet, exercise, getting enough sleep, compliance with medications, managing regular visit with primary care and specialist, stress relieving activities like meditation, staying in touch with family and friends. Talk to anybody who can actually comfort you and take or ease your stress out. 
all this matters to manage your chronic conditions. Some of the other questions I get right now, especially anxiety with the state of the world right now, socioeconomic things going on with everyone, a lot of anxiety going around. We usually do treat a lot of anxiety here. For the most part, the anxiety people feel is normal. There's a lot of things going on depending on where you're at with your job, with family. Some of these stresses are normal, but it is important to address it. Oftentimes what you know, we do is just bury it. We shut it down. We try to keep moving on. Um, but it's important to talk to someone. I'm always a big advocate for at least getting people to go see a therapist. That's the first management that I like to do. To try to talk out the problems, try to have someone else, in a way, share the burden with it. And also, when things are getting, you know, worse, definitely going and talk to your doctor. Because there are therapies as well. There's medication that we can take. There is still somewhat of a stigma with medications. What I always tell patients is that you should think about the medication as a tool to help you achieve those better mental health habits, to help you go to the gym, help you make those lifestyle changes, help you address some of those anxieties, some of those traumas, maybe even help you actually go to therapy because there's a lot of anxiety even with people taking that first step to go to therapy. Sometimes we're the first line in that. It's, it's very important to address that. And I guess for anyone that maybe is not having any mental health issues, prevention of it is another thing we talk about going back to the first question, going back to our preventative things, regular physical activity, diet, exercise, sleep is very important to keep a, a adequate mental health. Can I just ask a follow-up question to that? Is stress something that you're proactively asking about and that's how it comes up in appointments? Or do you find your patients are mentioning it to you proactively? So it's a little bit of both. Part of our practice, we always do depression screenings. If that comes up positive, that's usually where we'll get the stress from. More recently, I would say there's definitely a lot more people coming in with stress. And we need to figure out what that is. Sometimes it's family matters. Sometimes it's just long-standing trauma. A lot of times it's actually related to work. We have rather work-centric culture here in America. So oftentimes people are working full one or two jobs at 12, 14 hours. And there's no time afterwards to go work out or to eat a healthy diet. You don't have time to go cook. It's easier to just go out to buy something. We address that, we talk about it, see if medication is right for the patient, but also try to best manage some of those situations within their own lifestyle. Because obviously, if you're working 14 hours a day, because you need to pay rent, you need to take care of your family, I can't just say, quit that job. We need to work with what you're dealing with and go from there little by little. And sometimes we, when we start new medications, we may ask patients to come in a little more frequently just to make sure that... The medication is doing what it needs to be doing. One of the other questions that I get is, why do I need to follow up so frequently? And we get it because it takes time, it is expensive, you need to pay copays. But studies have shown that good follow-up care helps lower the risk of repeat trips to the hospital and ER. Patients who are healthy and without any chronic medical condition they could follow up once in a year for like complete physical. This will not only help them to maintain 
uh, they are helped by monitoring vitals, get a thorough physical examination, get up to date on vaccination, but also help to update regarding what all changes happening in their lives since their last visit, and also what is happening with their families. Because it is very important to update if any of their family member has been diagnosed with any new diagnosis like cancer, heart disease, so that we can screen them early and get them under control. And primary care follow-ups are also essential for patients who are getting discharged from hospital because it allows doctors like us to evaluate and adjust the medications. And it helps to ensure support of your transition back from home or from school. And also it allows us to keep building up on the progress that patients made during their hospital stay. And above all, for patients who have chronic health condition, follow-ups play a vital role to keep their conditions under control. For example, hypertensive patients, if they are well controlled, they can follow up like every four to six months. But if they are not well controlled, they need to be seen more frequently because we call hypertension as a silent killer because if your pressure is not under control with dose adjustment and medication management, you can get a heart attack. Same thing goes to diabetes. Patients need to follow up with their primary care regularly because not only do doctors help them to understand the key to optimum diabetes control during the regular visit, but also detect potential risk from diabetes like cardiovascular risk, no damage, vision loss, diabetic foot problem. Essentially, the follow-up is very important to pick it up early so that they can get into a healthy life condition and stay away from hospital. As far as the screenings that we mentioned before, some patients are wondering, or usually I get when they're hit 40 or 50, they're coming in with, am I up to date on screenings? What do I need to do? So this is why it's important to keep up seeing a doctor regularly, at least yearly. As I mentioned before, the very common yearly screenings at a young age, hypertension, high blood pressure screenings, elevated cholesterol, and depression are important. The other more specific screenings that also start young for women, usually around 21 years old, pap smear screenings. Depending on the type of the organization, there's several different organizations that have different recommendations on when to start that. For the most part, we usually start at 21 years old. Some other organizations recommend starting at 25. We also have mammogram screenings, which for the most part start at 40. Some other organizations recommend doing it at 50 years old. For mammograms, we usually do it yearly. And then colonoscopy is the big one that most people actually are coming in to ask for. And that one has recently started at 45 now. It used to be 50 just a few years ago. And they may actually keep lowering the age for that one as well. So those are the kind of the major things. And obviously, if you have any smoking history, there's CT lung screenings that usually are done at 55, depending on your specific smoking history. And there's other things as you get older that we're checking up on. Uh, and as research continues on cancer and detection of cancer, we may soon have blood work or screenings for that for more general cancer markers, but not just yet. Similar to that, one of the other questions that patients ask me is, how does my family history affect my health? It's a very important question, and most of our patients doesn't know much about 
their family history and the other hand they do know their family history but they take it lightly so if you have a family history of any conditions like cancer heart disease diabetes hemochromatosis you name it you're more likely to get that disease yourself so sharing your family health history with your doctor is vital to prevent the disease and catch it early. So for example, if your father, mother, brother, or sister had a heart attack, we always ask about the age. If they have a heart attack before age 50, then the chance of this patient to get a heart disease is high. The first thing to do in this kind of case is to talk to your primary care so that your doctor can screen you early and prevent you getting into worse situation. Same thing for Dr. Mandia mentioned about colon cancer, breast cancer. So if you're a woman with a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, you may be more likely to get these cancers yourself. So sharing this information with doctor is very important because your doctor can decide when you should start mammography. If you are a woman with a parent, sibling, or child with breast cancer, or even nephews or niece, based on current recommendation, you should consider taking a mammography at the age of 40. And if any of your family member has a breast cancer, and if they are positive with BRCA1, BRCA2, any kind of genetic or gene-related breast cancer, then you need to talk to the genetic counseling. Another important thing that I always tell my patient is the breast and ovarian cancer doesn't just come from your mother's side. Your father's relatives with breast or ovarian or any other kind of cancer matters too. So always talk to your primary care regarding that as well. Now the colon cancer screening, again, based on current recommendation, most people start the colorectal cancer at age 45. But if you have a family history of multiple relatives with colon cancer, then the screening age started at 40 or 10 years before the age that your immediate family member has it. Same thing goes to diabetes, always get screened for A1C and fasting blood sugar. And once you think you have it, or if you are pre-diabetic, then we can reverse it by doing a lifestyle modification, proper diet, exercise, weight loss, all these matters to get back on your healthy life condition. So the other very popular question I usually get, especially over the last few months, is about weight loss and the weight loss medications that are very popular right now online. These are very promising based on the initial research. They've been studied as well for diabetes. These are the GLP-1 inhibitors. They're very promising, but they are still not a full substitute for your regular physical activity and nutrition. I do still, every time patients come in and ask for that, I do mention how important it is to still try and do that regular physical activity and nutrition because doing that is also going to help prevent all of the other things we've been talking about this whole podcast about blood pressure, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, even some cancers. For some patients, they have seen it helps them psychologically better adapt to the lifestyle modifications because now when they're doing the exercise and the diet changes, they're actually seeing the weight come off, which is like a positive reinforcement, but it's still not a, a substitution for that. So always I tell patients, keep in mind that they still need to continue to try to achieve lifestyle modifications. 
And that is never going to happen overnight. It's never going to happen in a month. When we're asking patients to do lifestyle modification, I always tell patients that it needs to be done gradually, it needs to be done slowly. There are a lot of habits that we often may have had since childhood from our parents that we unfortunately need to unlearn. And that takes a lot of time. Getting into a regular physical activity takes a lot of time and it's going to look different for everyone. Some people don't want to go to the gym. That's perfectly fine. You don't have to lift weights. You don't have to run a marathon or anything. At minimum, what we recommend is walking. Simple walking definitely helps. It helps the heart, helps you lose weight. Any sort of physical activity that works for you is going to work. It's just we need to find out what that is. And people need to give themselves that, that time to find out what, the, what it is. Same thing with nutrition. Nutrition is always going to be different for everyone, depending on your culture, depending on what you like to eat. There's a lot of studies that show Mediterranean diet, low-carb diet, those things can help. And you can adapt some of those things if you like it. But again, your healthy nutrition is also going to be look very different from someone else. Because it's going to be tailored to you. It's going to be tailored to what you like. With these weight loss medications, I still try to emphasize the importance of nutrition and physical activity to patients. As far as these medications, they are working pretty well so far from what I've seen from some patients. The weight loss is happening. The thing right now is that so far we see that you basically need to be on the medication long-term to keep the weight off. There are some studies that show that if you maintain lifestyle modifications, you can maintain the weight once you come off of the medication. It's when we get to it in a few years, when we're starting to get patients off of these medications, there's going to have to be a discussion on, should we continue this long-term? We can treat obesity like a chronic disease, like diabetes, high blood pressure, where we continue giving these medications. But I do think we need to make sure that people are doing lifestyle modifications because we don't know the long-term effects just yet of these medications. We don't really know what's going to happen 10, 20 years down the line. So I do make sure patients are aware of that. And they are, so far, they're a good option. Definitely talk to your doctor if you have a question about that, if you are wanting to start that up. Can you speak to the importance of advocating for your own health and making sure that if you don't have a trusting relationship with your doctor, thinking it's not going to be the best for your health? So could you just talk a little bit about the importance of trust? Oh, yes. The trust has to happen slowly. You're not going to click with someone just the very first visit. But definitely, I would say that it's okay if you don't feel like you're clicking with your doctor, find another one that you may like. There's going to be different personalities throughout medicine. That trust is very important. It needs to be there because you need to feel like you can tell this person things that are very vulnerable so that we can actually address it and treat it if we need to treat it. If you feel like you can't trust your doctor about your mental health, you can't trust them about maybe passive thoughts of suicide, very heavy topics, then, you know, we're not going to be able to properly help you. I think establishing that trust is very important. And again, it's also on our end. We also need to make sure that we're speaking to patients respectfully, trying to be as open as possible, making sure that they are feeling heard, that they're feeling comfortable as well. We're using proper language around them. But yes, that is very important. And I just also like to add that both Dr. Mantia and Dr. Thomas are both bilingual. And I was wondering how that aspect of trust also helps play into making patients feel more comfortable being able to speak in their native language. 
Yeah, it is actually a blessing and to know these multiple languages, especially coming from an Indian background, I speak multiple Indian languages. And for sure, that actually increased this trust. So like Dr. Mantia was saying, it's it takes time and it's a gradual process. Just one by one, taking care of their medical condition and then going through their history taking, going through their current activities that they have done for the current medical condition and respecting it and advising is like giving a mutual agreement. We always tell the patient these are the right things to do. And then we always ask them, what do you think about it? What are your suggestions? So that we can go through a mutual agreement. And then when they come for a follow-up, it'll be more interesting from their aspect to talk about it and tell us about how it actually helped them to move forward. Language has been a barrier for a lot of patients. And then knowing their native language does matter, does change a lot of things. And actually we can pull up a lot of their medical and their family history just by keeping them open and then make them talk more about their health history. It's been very impactful. I speak Spanish as my second language. And especially during training, I had my residency clinic at, it made a huge difference for a lot of patients because they were, going back to the trusting, they were actually able to adequately express what they were feeling, any problems that they were having which is very important. Oftentimes, especially with the Hispanic populations, it's a low-income population. There's already systemic barriers to healthcare. I myself come from a low-income background, so I've seen what it's like for my mom to get care with a hospital system that doesn't have interpreters, that doesn't speak any English, where I have had to be interpreter as a child. It's very rewarding for me to be able to actually provide that service for patients. And they always light up. Whenever a patient, you speak to them in their own language, they always light up and they always have a lot of questions usually because if they've gone to a place where they've never heard a doctor speak Spanish, they probably only are there for whatever the major thing is and they don't mention anything else because the interaction between the doctor, the interpreter, Sometimes it's a little clunky. I definitely encourage a lot more diversity in medicine, a lot of not just racial diversity, language, socioeconomic diversity is also very important because of that same issue. Now we're on to our final question. What question do you wish your patients would ask you? Dr. Mantia, why don't you begin? Really what I wish is if patients ask more, what can I do? What does a healthy lifestyle mean? What, is, what does good nutrition mean? What is physical? What do you mean by, by you need to do healthy lifestyle? You need to exercise more. Because I think that always is at the root of health. The four pillars of health are going to be nutrition, exercise, your mental health, and sleep. So I wish patients would try to focus more on that more especially when you're younger. The problem is when you're younger, you feel a little more invincible. So you're not, I don't have problems and I'm not going to have problems and I can keep doing what I'm doing because I'm healthy right now and nothing has happened yet. Unfortunately, the way the body works is that your body is very good at adapting. It's very good at taking insult until it isn't, which usually is in your thirties. And that's when things start breaking down if you haven't been taking care of things. That's something that we can definitely all help with as physicians. 
And just know that it's always going to be a very individual process. You can look up diets online. You can follow them to the T and yeah, you're probably going to lose weight. But if you can't maintain that, if you don't like it, if you hate it, uh, then you're not going to be successful at it. You're not going to keep it. Physical activity, your dietary changes, that's going to be very individual to you. And it needs to be something that you enjoy because you need to enjoy life and you need to be happy with it. Uh, it can't just be a punishment every time you have to go to the gym or you have to go on a walk. It should be something you are looking forward to do. So working with your doctor to figure out what that is for you is very important. So for me, I get patients talking to me about their family health conditions. And a few weeks ago, one of my patients told me that his colleague passed away from a heart attack and the colleague was only in his early 50s. And then I'm personally managing a lot of medical condition for this patient. And I wish he asked me, like, how can I prevent heart disease or how can I prevent any chronic diseases to get it before getting it into the late stage? In the United States, around 650,000 people died from heart disease. And heart disease is the leading cause of death in almost all countries, and it is one of the most common causes of disability in the U.S. There are many things that can raise your risk for heart disease, and so many people don't know how to prevent it. So mainly, the American Heart Association, when they take measures for prevention, they divide mainly this into modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So when we talk about non-modifiable risk factors, there are things that we cannot change, like age, sex, race, or ethnicity. Like men age 45 and older and women age 55 and older have a greater risk for heart disease. Sex-wise, for women, estrogen provides some protection against heart disease. But if they have diabetes, their risk for heart disease is more than men. Same for ethnicity, African-Americans are more likely to get heart disease than Caucasians, while Hispanic Americans are less likely to have it. Some Asian groups like East Asians have lower rates of heart disease compared to South Asians. There are things that we cannot do anything, but there are things that we can work on, which is modifiable risk factors. Say, for example, hypertension. Blood pressure is one of the major risk factors for heart disease. So managing your blood pressure, regular visit to doctor, diet, exercise, getting your sodium under control does matter for preventing heart disease. Same thing for high cholesterol, triglycerides. High level of cholesterol can clog the arteries, can lead to heart attack. Many patients doesn't know the healthy weight. They doesn't know about the right BMI that they have to get. Studies mainly say that BMI between 18.5 and 25 is the right BMI to prevent heart disease. Again, avoid smoking, avoid alcohol intake. One of the other questions that patients tell me, Doc, I thought alcohol is good for your heart. The next question I ask them, how much do they drink? Men should have no more than two standard alcohol drink per day and women should not have more than one standard alcohol drink per day. So the question is, how many of us know about what is a standard alcohol drink? A standard alcohol drink, if you're talking about a beer, is 12 ounces of beer or 8.5 ounces of malt liquor or like a 5 ounce of table wine or 3.5 ounces of fortified wine 
or 2.5 ounce of liquor or just 1.5 ounce of like vodka or whiskey. So when you drink alcohol, you need to keep this in mind. Make sure that you get enough sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, you raise your risk for high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes. And nowadays, the one of the most common diagnoses that we make is sleep apnea. I always ask my patients, how is their sleep? Do they snore at night? Do they gasp for air at night? How do they feel in the morning when they wake up? Do they have brain fog? Do they feel like they did not get enough sleep? These are most common symptoms as we pick it up for sleep apnea. So managing good sleep, managing your diabetes under control, smoking cessation, alcohol limit intake, blood pressure control, cholesterol control, all these matters to prevent heart disease. Be sure to check the show notes for additional resources, including the link to the Living Well blog where we publish full episode transcripts. In our next episode, we will be exploring the top patient questions surrounding GI health. So if you have any gut health related questions, we want to hear them. You can slide into our DMs on social or send us an email at livingwell at jefferson.edu. And as always, if you enjoy our podcast, we truly appreciate a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Production support for today's episode provided by Brittany Raffalak and Barbara Henderson. We're your hosts, Jess Lopez and Carly Williams. Be well.